This Slate TV Club podcast is sponsored by the new ABC series, American Crime. This March, one crime will affect so many lives. From the Oscar-winning screenwriter of 12 Years a Slave comes the year's most extraordinary drama. Don't miss American Crime, premiering Thursday, March 5th, 10, 9 central on ABC. The following podcast contains spoilers. We strongly recommend you watch the episode of The Walking Dead we're discussing before you listen to this podcast. Slate Plus members get early access to our Walking Dead podcast at 10 p.m. on Sundays following the broadcast on AMC. If you're not a Slate Plus member but want early access, sign up at slate.com slash deadplus. Hello and welcome to Slate's The Walking Dead podcast. I'm Mike Volo, senior producer here in Washington, D.C., Joining me in New York City is video producer Chris Wade. Hey, Chris. Hey, Mike. What's going on? I just watched the most recent episode of The Walking Dead, like literally just finished moments before we are speaking right now. I as well. I uh, watched it this morning and then had a somewhat fraught train ride into the city. So I'm probably a little staler, but not much more than 40 minutes behind. Yeah, it's not a show that I think is intended to be viewed in the morning, like early morning with breakfast. I I think we talked about watching experiences last week. It is weird to be sitting down with like my morning cup of coffee with like crisp, clear light streaming in through my windows and (laughs) watching some very grim zombie murders. Yeah, guts and gore with your eggs and pancakes. (laughs) So the cold open picks up right where the last episode leaves off. Exactly. Everyone's in the barn, except for Maggie and Sasha, who come in with Mr. L.L. Bean. Aaron is his name. Aaron, sounding like a very nervous pitch man, tries to convince the group to follow him back to his exceedingly well-fortified camp, we learn. Each panel in that wall is a 15-foot-high, 12-foot-wide slab of solid steel framed by cold-rolled steel beams and square tubing. Nothing, alive or dead, gets through that without our say-so. And he tells the group that they have to audition, his word, not mine, audition to be a part of his community. And in the middle of this spiel, Rick cold cocks him, lays him out. Our community was first constructed. What I would have called a haymaker, but we later had it specified as a right cross. Further, by the way, confirming that it's very easy to knock somebody unconscious in The Walking Dead. Really, all it takes is one punch or one smack of their head against a window pane or really anything slightly hard, and that, boom, they're out. I mean, that is like a reoccurring any kind of action or thriller trope, that if you are a male lead and have a clean shot, you can knock somebody out in one punch. I'm sure there's a Mythbusters episode somewhere about the veracity of the one-punch knockout. I'm doubtful. I really am. I think it's just a very convenient way for dramas to take a character out of commission for a small amount of time. Yeah, exactly. To be able to relay information between some characters that other characters do not hear. Yeah. Although I don't think it would really make any difference if Aaron did or did not hear this. I really like this episode. This has like all the things going for me that I like in a Walking Dead episode. It has negotiations of trust and faith in this post-apocalyptic world. It has a discrete destination and plot wheels moving forward. It had some good action. It had some good tension. It had some good mystery because we still don't really know what's going up on with this Aaron guy. I think that all the right Walking Dead wheels were moving in this episode. 
Yeah, and Aaron, of course, leaves them with a decision, follow me or don't. And this is, I think, we've talked a lot about trust on this podcast. This is one of the purest, most crystalline examples of the trust dilemma that the group has faced. It's very stark, right? It's like, here's this guy who claims to have a camp, claims to have a very secure group of people who are well-meaning, well-intentioned, and all they need to do is follow him. As the episode unfolded, I really like this episode too, there were a few things that didn't quite add up for me about Aaron. And I'm not sure that I blame Rick. Rick really is the one of the group who was the least trustful, the least willing to kind of go along with what Aaron said. Michonne just wants someplace secure, and she is willing to trust Aaron with whatever it is that he throws at them. Yeah, it's interesting that Aaron's mere making his presence known kind of activates this whole system of paranoia in Rick. You said that his offer was either follow me or don't, but that's not really what's on the table because Rick knows or senses that if he was able to track the group down, that they've been being watched and that there are probably any more. There was that good little dialogue about how many people are there out there and Aaron being like, what could I say that you would possibly believe? I mean, of course, it matters how many people are actually out there, but it doesn't matter how many people I tell you are out there, because I'm pretty sure no matter what number I say, eight, 32, 444, zero, no matter what I say, you're not going to trust me. That is the kind of discussion that we both really like getting into that there is really no way to know anything about these people. But once Aaron shows up, he basically is going to be their prisoner. And even if he was like, okay, I'm just going to walk away, follow me or don't, I doubt Rick would let him walk away, knowing that there are people out there that know something about his group and have been tracking him. And later, the audio device that they were using to listen in becomes a big point that basically makes everybody in the car go crazy for a second. Yeah. I mean, I like watching Rick negotiate the level at which his own paranoia verges on insanity or verges on the right decision. And later in the episode, we hear Carol literally verbalize that by saying, even though you were wrong, you were right. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. You were right to be distrustful of the situation, but you were wrong that it was a situation to be distrustful Although about. they don't really know that yet. They're not yet inside <laughs> we, the community. We end staring down the cold rolled steel gates yeah. of Alexandria. Are they in like a... What is Alexandria, Virginia like? It's like a suburb, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's its own city. I mean, it's its own sizable city. But there's a lot of commuters who work in D.C. from Alexandria. So as you mentioned, Rick wants to know, how many others did you bring with you, Aaron? And he finally answers one. And it seems to be true because Maggie, Glenn, Michonne, Abraham, and Rosita go off to verify Aaron's story that he and somebody else from his community brought a couple of cars, drove them, and left them about two miles down the road. Now, there is somebody that we see hiding in the brush who we, I think, believe is this other person that came with Aaron, right? Yeah, and the suspicious music starts to swell when we see this guy. What I didn't quite understand is, did now Maggie and Glenn and the others, did they just take the two cars and drive them back to the barn? Yeah, there were a few narrative moments in this episode that I also found not quite directly clear. 
which is not necessarily a bad thing. I like having to fill in the blanks a little bit in TV and movies. But yeah, as far as I could understand, this other guy, whose name we learn is Eric, had walked away from the cars to kind of distance himself from them, probably assuming that these people would come and look for them. They took the cars back to the barn and decided to deploy out from there. Now, the next narrative beat that I'm having difficulty putting everything together is how the two cars got separated, Right. where Eric was and what he was doing when he sent up the flare, and where they all met up later and how did they know to meet up there? Yeah, exactly. That's precisely where I got tripped up because the car runs into a herd of walkers and loses the trailer. It's nowhere to be seen. So it wasn't clear to me how they got separated. And then once they get out of the car and fight off a bunch of the walkers, they see a flare go up. They follow the flare towards a water tower and then find the rest of the group there with Eric, who we are, I think, supposed to believe sent up the flare because he had broken his ankle while fighting off a walker. Yeah, that's right. And to add another wrinkle to it, as I mentioned earlier, at the moment that they run into this herd of zombies, they had just found an audio recording device in the car, which sets off even more paranoia triggers that they had been being monitored. And Aaron's kind of like, yeah, well, of course we were monitoring you. I knew all this information about you. How else do you think I had heard it? We had to kind of figure out who you were. Everyone in the car flips out. Glenn slams on the gas and they (laughs) careen through this giant herd of walkers. I just liked the way this whole sequence is put together. I like that shot from overhead Mm -hmm. of the car just (laughs) peeling through all these dead guys. Yeah, it wasn't just an audio device. It was one of those like large shotgun mics that you see on the sidelines of an NFL game so that they can capture, you know, what the quarterback is saying to his snapper. It's like like 40 yards away. Yeah, from 40 yards away. Yeah. I think that that was one of my favorite things of this episode is the uh, the subtlety with which they placed signifiers that maybe Aaron isn't revealing everything that he could be revealing mm-hmm. or that maybe he was trying to conceal things. Yeah. Like the fact that he had brought all these pictures of his community, but none of the pictures have any people in them. Exactly. Right. Totally does not make sense. highly suspicious. Yeah. He said that the reason that there is no picture with people in it is that he actually did take a group photo of everybody in his community, but it was overexposed when he tried to develop it. Well, now here's the the mind game that I was enjoying playing with this is how would you go about doing this? What can you do knowing what people have gone through, probably having gone through it yourself, to do this job? I honestly came away from this thinking that perhaps this is a much more dangerous way to do it, but perhaps honestly the best way to recruit people into communities at this point is just to straight up kidnap them, bring them there, show them your goodwill by force, and then give them the opportunity to leave. That sounds risky to me. Right? I, mean, I mean, yes. <laughs> I think that's a good way to get yourself shot and killed. It is. It is. But like in terms of proving that the inside of this walled city is a place that you want to be, I mean, the, the hardest thing is getting people inside the walled city, you know? Well, so if you have a walled city and you're trying to recruit people, then that must mean that you need outsiders still to fill in some gaps. Otherwise, you would be self-sustaining, right? You could replenish the population yourself. Do you think he's out looking for mates? It's weird that if they're out trying to recruit people, it's like, well, why? What do they need? Is it just benevolence? 
I took the thesis of Aaron's mission to be what he says to Glenn. Glenn's own phrase said back to him something like, we can survive together, but we can only survive together. Mm-hmm. They see that they are strong. They see that they are good. And the more strong, good people you have in your fold, the better your fold will be. Okay, let's take a brief pause to hear about this week's sponsor. This March, it's time to experience American crime. One offense will send shockwaves through a community like never before, shattering families and igniting a media frenzy in this powerful, thought-provoking, and timely series. From the Oscar-winning screenwriter of 12 Years a Slave comes the year's most extraordinary new drama. Felicity Huffman and Timothy Hutton star in American Crime. It premieres Thursday, March 5th, 10 o'clock Eastern, 9 Central on ABC. That's American Crime, Thursday, March 5th on ABC. Back to the photos, something else that bothered me about them is that it wouldn't just be a group shot that you would take, right? Yeah, there'd be people wandering around yeah, doing whatever they do. Yeah, you would have candid do. photos of people. You would show people in action in your community, this is what it's like, this is what we're doing. You wouldn't just have something that's posed. You would want to show people that this is a real place with real lives going on. You'd want it to look like a college brochure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that didn't quite add up. Yeah, which maybe is more posed than even you would want. But yeah, basically a bunch of people smiling and laughing in a quad, picking apples from your apple trees where you make your applesauce that you hate but carry around anyway. Right, and that's another thing that didn't add up. So Lilith is in the barn with Rick and Aaron while everybody else is kind of staking out the grounds around. Lilith is hungry, she's crying, and Aaron says, I brought applesauce, didn't you see it in my backpack? So Rick takes some applesauce on a spoon and tries to get Aaron to eat some first to prove that it's not poisoned. And Aaron says, you know, I don't like applesauce. My mother tried to force me when I was a kid to eat applesauce and salmon patties and onions to make me more manly, which was a foreshadowing of something that we learned later. Now, if you're trying to engender trust in a group of people that you just surprised in the woods— It's really immaterial whether or not you like applesauce. You should eat (laughs) that applesauce, right? Yeah. It makes no sense to quibble about the applesauce. On the other hand, I mean, this is, I guess what I I liked about this is that every counterpoint of like, that's really suspicious, dude, is also balanced by him being like, it's self-preservation for me to feed your child because if she keeps crying, it's going to attract monsters that are going to kill me. By the way, he doesn't use the word monsters. He used, oh, yeah. We get a new, a new term this episode. I think it's new. Yeah. I'm not sure that we've heard this one before. He uses roamers. Roamers. Right. Now, Woodbury used biters. Grady Memorial used rotters. They use walkers. Right. Rick and the rest of the group use walkers. I don't know how many more uh, terms that we can get in this show. I mean, every time I hear a new one, it just becomes more elaborate ways, not to say zombies. Although I do like our... Or I think this was your theory, Mike, that this exists in a universe in which the idea of zombies had never existed. Yeah. Like fictional zombies don't exist in the Walking Dead universe. We have no evidence that they do. Not only has nobody ever used the word zombie, but nobody's ever made reference to this mythos, right? This kind of lore that we have. It would be great in like a season eight Walking Dead episode (laughs) to have a character be like, Oh, yeah. Remember in that movie, Night of the Living Dead, when they made a bunch of – and people are like, what? Night of the Night of the Living Dead? I, I haven't heard about – thought about that movie in years and him being like, what? 
this is it, right? You guys aren't thinking about this movie? What's wrong with you people? Wait, these are zombies, right? Do you, you guys realize that this is a zombie right here? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, right. Why are we calling them walkers? I, I'm just wondering how many more names they can come up with at this point. Shamblers? Ramblers? Amblers, yeah. I like yeah. the fact that they all have different names. I think it, it makes may, sense. It makes sense within the world, Yeah, I guess. So going back to the confusion over the timeline with Eric and the cars getting separated, what didn't make sense to me about that was Aaron says that he came with another person. They go to the cars. They don't find another person because Eric is hiding. Are we to believe that Eric was going to walk back by yeah. himself to their community in Alexandria? Which is still from what we can tell, dozens of miles away. Yeah, you know, it's almost as if they edited out a scene that caused a kind of plot hole to develop. That could be true. Yeah, because there there's something there that doesn't really add up either geographically or narratively. I mean, by the time we all get everything back together, it's, it's like, fine, I get it. But it's not that often that something just doesn't quite make sense and they gloss over it like that. Yeah. So it was a little disconcerting. So I mentioned earlier that Aaron said that his mother forced him to eat these foods when he was a kid to make him more manly. What they were foreshadowing there was that Aaron and Eric are a couple. These are, I think, the first gay characters we've seen on The Walking Dead. Yes, that is true, which is interesting to see, although it was broadcast very heavy-handedly. I felt like that scene was a lot of like, hey, everybody, these are gay characters. Well, I mean, I think quite courageously, they made a point of having Aaron and Eric kiss, which they would do if they had gotten separated and one of them was injured and they were happy to see each other. You know, it's funny because as much as we've talked about diversity on the show and how it actually does a really good job of representing racial and ethnic diversity, it hadn't occurred to me, I think, that there were no gay characters on The Walking Dead. Maybe that's my own fault, but I'm glad that they're introducing yet other kinds of diversity. Yeah, it's interesting because I I guess we do see two different post-apocalyptic couples in our main group with Maggie and Glenn and Abraham and Rosita. I'm just thinking about like in an almost sheer numbers sense. We don't know yet if Eric and Aaron were a couple before the apocalypse or after. Given our timeline, it seems unlikely that they were before. But just the idea of in terms of like proportion and number of meeting another gay person – in these small group scenarios and sticking with them long enough to form a relationship, it kind of makes sense that it would be this rare and frequent to me, I guess. But it also might be an indication of how many people are in this new community that they're looking at. Wait, is that true that in the entire history of the TV series now that those are the only two post-apocalyptic hookups? Can we think of any others? Oh, well, no, the governor and Andrea. Yes, that's true. Although that was always weird and yeah. maybe manipulative. It wasn't quite a healthy coupling. No. And then when the governor had his weird second act where he was off in the woods, he kind of got almost got with those other people that he met up with. Yeah. So I take that more as a symptom of the governor's sociopathy than a sincere romance. Yeah, a fair point. There's a scene that I'm surprised you haven't mentioned yet. When the zombie gets shot by a flare gun? Yeah, that's <laughs> really? that was what I'm you were going absolutely for? certain that you loved yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> that was great. That was some excellent zombie FX, some great glowing, burning zombie skull. I was into it. 
Yeah, it was like a Walker skull Roman candle. Yeah, exactly. It was quite beautiful. Yeah. I also like, and I think that they've specifically mentioned doing this, their FX department, that they design the zombies with a sense of time in mind. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that zombies that have existed longer are in more sophisticated states of rot. And I kind of think mm-hmm. that this season, one of the things that I've been noticing more is the fluid inside of the zombies has kind of turned more into this like black oozing ichor that I find particularly disgusting, but also particularly realistic that as their insides continue to liquefy into a black rotting mass of thick viscous ooze, that that is more of what we're seeing. And I'm specifically thinking of like when Glenn smashes that zombie head on a rock and it just kind of immediately dissolves into black jelly. Yeah, ever since you mentioned that, that the show has made a conscious effort to do this, I've been looking for it this season and noticing it, that the zombies seem to be a little softer and easier to cut through. Yeah, and it's also interesting in just like the general behavior of the group towards the walkers of the kind of casualness in which they go about dismissing them at this point, that a single walker is not a big threat anymore. Aaron even mentions that, that... (laughs) He was impressed by their group treating being, like, casually walked after by a whole herd of zombies as, like, no big deal. Right. And that's another thing, by the way, that didn't quite add up for me with Aaron was when Michonne realizes when they're in the car that they hadn't yet asked Aaron the questions. How many walkers have you killed? I'm sorry, what? How many? A lot. It seemed to trip him up. Yeah, he got right? a little defensive. He was like, yeah. It's like, why? Why? What do you mean? Yeah. You know, it's like it was a very straightforward question. I mean, to give him the benefit of the doubt, at that point for these people, it, it could be like a confusing question to be of like, how how many? I don't know. How many have you killed? Hundreds? Thousands? Right, yeah. An infinite amount of walkers. <laughs> <laughs> right. His answer was something like a lot, yeah. which is fine, right? It's a fine answer, but he seemed to hesitate yeah. and... I don't know if we were supposed to read in. So do you that. want to speculate wildly about where this is going? Wow. So the episode ends with them now outside the gate. And what I think is interesting about their demeanor and their attitude here with Michonne and Rick is that it almost feels like they think they're saved, right? They think this is it. Yes. End of the show. <laughs> this is where we're going to live. And then it turns into the show that you want it to be of the <laughs> slow rebuilding of civilization, government, infrastructure, and family. Right. It becomes the show 30-something. You know, it's like <laughs> they're all just like yuppies having families. Yeah. <laughs> With like a little dash of like West Wing light of like <laughs> how to negotiate implementing a new constitution. So, well, two things that struck me about this is that one – their trust issues have not been resolved fully, right? Mm-hmm. And two, they seem to have forgotten that they need to audition for these people. They have not been accepted yet. Aaron specifically says at the beginning of the episode, it's not my call. You need to prove to we don't know who that you belong there. And it may very well be the case, this is what I'm conjecturing now, that this is a wonderful place to live, that it's absolutely heaven in this post-apocalyptic world, and they're not accepted. They're rejected. Yeah, and as they should be, because again, this group is a plague of locusts on any stable community. Right. 
I mean, if they do know their history, and it seems that they know at least some of their history because they've been watching them, then they know how destructive they can be. Yes. Here's what you do. You set up your gated community as secure as possible and then have a smaller separate thing, like maybe just one house that is segmented from the community but within sight, within interaction distance, not quite as secure. It's like partitioned. Yeah, partitioned. And your offer is, here's the thing. This is basically a safe house that you can live in, and we will leave you alone, but it is within sight of our group. You have exclusive access to this area, but it is like you can then observe us doing our thing, and we can observe you doing your thing. And when we both feel comfortable, we can re-broach the idea of you guys coming in. Like maybe that is how I would run an audition process. Right. It's like bringing in a pet from the U.S. to Europe and they have them quarantined for six months and say, okay, now all's clear. We trust that this dog is disease-free. So essentially a trial period. Yeah. I mean, I see the reason both morally and logistically for wanting to continue to bring in new people and try to integrate survivors into your group, even though it's dangerous for both parties and even though it's incredibly risky. I mean, there are many times in just this episode in which Aaron could have been killed, could have been <laughs> executed immediately upon first contact. What he is doing is is incredibly risky on his own behalf, which Almost in itself is enough to engender trust to a certain level because what is to be gained by risking this own guy's life to bring in these people? Like, what could you possibly do if you had bad intentions with a whole group of people? Like, kill them and eat them? He's got all this food. Yeah. But I think it's enough also to engender suspicion because it's for the same exact reason, asking those same exact questions. It's like, what does he have to gain by putting his own life on the line, driving many miles from his safe haven to find us, surprise us, and try to convince us to come back and audition for them? What's in it for them? Strength in numbers, dude. Strength in numbers. Yeah, I guess so. But... This, I think, is why I love The Walking Dead is because whatever is inside those walls, assuming it's desirable, is, I think, what I would want, right? It's kind of my fantasy is to shed all of this ultimately burdensome technology that I live with and this busy lifestyle that I lead is to shed all of that and go back to something that's really simple in a very kind of back-to-the-land way where I have time to just read the novels that I want to read and Grow the but as soon as you I'm... pull them out of the library, your glasses fall off and shatter. <laughs> yes, right. Like in the Twilight Zone episode. I am trying to think if there's ever been a show or a drama or a fantasy that's Walking Dead-like. Some kind of worldwide apocalypse has happened, but is not really about the threat or the violence of it or like the day that the apocalypse happened, but is the television drama of 10 years out that is just about building a new community with the vestiges of what you knew from society still lingering over you, but having the opportunity to rebuild, the opportunity and the struggle to rebuild from the ground up, only knowing what you took with you. I've got some great 19th century utopian literature that I'm sure would uh, really turn you on. (laughs) Okay, well, um, I'm sure are both looking forward to finding out what is inside this Alexandria community and how Rick and company are going to totally mess it up. Yep, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Whatever is inside there, good or bad, 
they are going to eat away from the inside like a cancer. As always, thank you so much if you're a Slate Plus member. And if you're not, please sign up at slate.com slash dead plus. You'll get this podcast 24 hours in advance. That's slate.com slash dead plus. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>